The Bible readings this morning come from Matthew chapter 13. The first one is verses 3 to 9. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed also fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. And the next reading is from verses 18 to 30. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But one, the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Good morning. My name's Stephen Cole. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Pastor at WDBC. It's an honour for me to, to preach the church as God's field. Uh, that's what we've been doing, looking at what is the church and then thematically looking how Scripture reveals to us from God's Word who we are and what we're supposed to uh, be doing whether that's expressed through the human body or expressed through looking at construction that we saw last week and something else that we're quite familiar with because we all kind of tend to go, oh, I'm going to grow a garden and it's going to be awesome and then you know, we're left with just a couple of herbs because the reality is we don't tend the garden enough. But we all know the, the basic premise of, of growing something. I grew up the first 25 uh, years of my life on a, on a cotton property I'm by no stretch of the imagination a farmer, uh, but it was a family business, so I couldn't help but uh, pick things up on the way. Um, I was your typical rebellious teenager that didn't want to take on the, the family identity that we were uh, farmers. So you could find me kind of in the 40 degree heat with my dyed black hair 
and my skate shoes on and looking like an absolute idiot in comparison to everyone else with their Akubras and whatever else they had going on. Uh, but I was trying to be the urban kid and there was more sheep than people where I lived. <coughs> uh, for all my teen years though, I did learn uh, how to do a bit of farming and that's just because by association of being on the family farm, that's what you do and that's what it means. I used to watch my uncles and, and most of my family, you know, if they wanted family time, you threw the kids in the back of the ute and you irrigated together or you turned on water gates together. That's how you spent quality family time. You do the thing together because it's the family investment. Scripture reveals to us that God is a farmer and he is investing in a crop and that crop is his church. And his church is both the product of farming and it is the children who are working along with him. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are co-workers in God's service, you are God's field. Churches, like me, sometimes I don't think like what they are, and they don't like the job so much all the time of what they've been given. But by association to God and Christ, we are a part of the family's investment in making sure that there is a righteous crop grown here on earth. We're going to keep it pretty simple this morning. We're going to be looking at two things that it takes to grow a successful crop, the soil and the seed. I know that it takes more than that, but it would have been about four hours of sermon listening if you wanted me to put in water, sun and farmers. And the third thing that we're going to look at or consider is what it's all for, which is the harvest these three elements in Scripture are going to reveal three spiritual truths, and then we're going to look at how these apply to our lives. The first one is that the church is only found where the Word of God is believed, understood, and obeyed. hope the writing's big enough for you. Uh, two, the church is the place in which God's goodness is made manifest in the world, and the church is the only saved people of God. So as we go through these images, we'll be looking at these spiritual truths and how they apply. But with that, let's pray and begin. Father in heaven, all good things come from you, and you have given us your word so that we might know you and understand you and walk with you. Father, that it's your good pleasure to walk with us, and we want to enjoy and embrace that, that we have that ability because you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who has shown us the way. In your name, amen. The first thing that you need to grow a crop is soil. I'm not talking hydro, we're doing soil. Can't plant a seed if you don't have some dirt. In Matthew 13, which was just read for us, Jesus describes four types of soil that have four different responses when a seed is planted into it. And this imagery is showing us that the seed is the Word of God, represents the Word of God, and the soil, which is what we're talking about now, represents the acceptance of God word, God's Word into the heart of the hearer. This is explained in verse 19 that's quoted down the bottom here. And Jesus lists four spiritual truths about how humanity receives God's word, how it, when it not only is it heard, but what it does in the heart of the person who hears. And the first response, or the first soil, says that if a person doesn't understand the word of God when it's given to them, their heart can't receive it, it's like hard, whatever was revealed, the devil, which is represented by the birds, will take it away. 
The second response is that a person who understands the Word of God and, and initially enjoys everything about it, but doesn't mature because of the, the rockiness in the heart, you know, immature root system, they'll wither away. And they wither away because when faced with embarrassments or maybe a pressure to conform to society or their shame to believe in Jesus, which is representing the persecution, the person withers and they disown the word of God to kind of conform. The third response is that of a person who hears the word of God, but because they consider the worries in this world a greater priority and the money a higher pursuit, even though that might be a mature plant, they don't produce anything. And the last response is the good soil. The reason it's good is because when it lands, not only does the person understand, but they live according to it. It produces what it's supposed to, and that yields more fruit. As to how this relates to the church as being a field, it relates in this way. The true church of God only consists of people who receive the word of God, that is, they believe it, they understand the word of God, they know how it applies to them, and they live out the word of God, they produce the fruit. There's a commitment to obedience. And Jesus clearly outlines this for us. He says, the good ground is the one who hears, that's belief, they understand, that's how it applies, and they produce, they live that out. So we know that the, the church is only founded on good soil. That's it. The other three soils don't matter. They don't do anything. So you might sit there and go, well, I have good understanding, but if it's not being produced, well, it's as good as the first soil that doesn't receive at all. The end goal is the reproduction or the production of fruit. I'll give you some examples of how this works. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says to the church, we constantly thank God for you because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which, was, which also works effectively in you who believe. Paul knew that the word of God, the seed, would be heard by many, but it would only have effect in the ones, not who just heard it, but actually believed it as it truly was, the actual Word of God. If your Bible study group or your own personal devotional time or, or the message that's spoken on a Sunday just boils down to a human interpretation, there's nothing ever really real about God's Word because you can easily just interpret a different way. You don't really believe in the Word of God. The fact that there is an objective truth that God has revealed to us that this is distinctly who He is and what He wants from His people. It can't just be some, I can just palm off everything and believe what I want at what time because I can just express a different interpretation or my own opinion of who God is. There is a reality to how he has revealed himself. And this is not constructed by man, but by the Lord. The second example is on someone who understands, uh, who hasn't got the understanding of God, won't understand the God, uh, have an understanding of God. And I used Hosea here when he says, Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I will reject you from serving as my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your sons. 
For they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. Promiscuity, wine, and new wine takes away one's understanding. Here is a prophet amongst the people, and he is speaking the word of God. He is prophesying to them in reality about who God is. And he says, you don't understand God's word. This is people with Bibles in their hand, or even reading their Bibles, but they don't actually understand God at all. You know, I believe God knows the difference. I don't think I know this. God knows the difference, and we know the difference if we're going to be truly honest. In our heart of hearts, between reading God's word, because it's our religious duty just to knock it off for the day, and reading God's word because you're actually seeking to understand the Lord who made you and who saved you. There's no fooling God on that one. We might fool ourselves. But even worse than this is Hosea is saying that they have the word of God. You know, the, the, the Bible's on the bookshelf. The, the verses are on the walls. But they don't care to understand it because what they're actually seeking out is, is just kind of their own leisurely fun of, of a bit of sex, a few beers, and a few glasses of wine. And that's actually taking them away from any real devotion of truly seeking to understand God. And these type of people exemplify Christianity, which has kind of that rocky soil. They, they don't mind God to a point, but they don't want it to go any further either. It's not going to mature. And the last example I'll give you is on doing the word of God. And we won't spend too much time here, but James 1.22 says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. So that means that you can hear the word of God, believe in the word of God, understand the word of God and how it's supposed to be lived and then you can just go on your merry way just go do something else and this one to me has to be the worst one because it's rebellion without excuse why do people do this Jesus makes it plain in the parable you put a greater concern on your life here and now and a higher priority on getting wealth on earth than you do on doing what God commands why don't Christians give generously to the poor? Why don't they forgive their enemies? Why don't they teach their children or foster or love their neighbor by telling them about Jesus, praying, fasting, baptism, attending church? Why don't they give up their lives for the kingdom? It's generally not because we don't know that that is what God wants from us. Wealth, our wealth is more important to us than obeying God to give it away, right? Right? There's a higher priority. I don't want to be hurt again by someone, so I'm not going to forgive them. I don't teach my children because there's a greater priority of me watching the new episodes on Netflix. We don't foster children because we've got a high priority of having a leisurely life and a clean house. We don't, where am I up to next? <laughs> Share with our friends because we have a high priority on making sure that we can maintain that friendship. We don't pray for our daily needs because we busy and stress ourselves out just trying to get our daily greeds. We don't fast for God because we have a high priority feed in our gut. We don't get baptized, we've got a high priority of making sure that we're not publicly ashamed for professing what God's done in our lives. We don't attend church because we've got a pretty much a higher priority from anything from sleep to sport. We don't give up our lives for the word of God because our lives are the higher priority. So you can understand it and know what the Lord wants you to do and just not do it. And these three soils, it doesn't matter which one you are, even if you've got great theology and know everything about God, superior to everyone, none of them produce fruit. 
to none of them a good soil. Now, no Christian wants to be this soil, do they? And every Christian, if they are honest, know they identify with probably all of them, a little bit, or they're really in one category. But Jesus didn't give this parable to us to go, 75% of you are stuffed. He gave the parable to you because he wants you to be good soil that has the good seed and he wants to see his people prosper. John says that he desires to see the good fruit produced in you. Now I'm going to give three very quick application points on how to successfully till the soil of your heart. (laughs) If your heart is so hard that God's word has no place to grow in you, you need to repent. Jeremiah, when he's talking of repentance, he says this, break up the unplowed ground of your heart. We have an active part to play in the undoing of the hardness of the heart. Now, repentance isn't just sitting there going, oh, I need to make a few lifestyle adjustments to fit in a few more of these extracurricular Christian activities. Repentance is, I'm living the wrong way according to God. It's acknowledgement. You're just going the wrong way. And it's turning back from your sins to go to God. It's not turning back from your sins to go into a different form of sin. It's going to God. It's not going away from your sins to just go, I'm not going to try and sin. It's going to God and living the way that he has called you to live, to walk with him. Number two, if you've received the word of God happily, but you've decided to stop maturing, happy just to be a seedling, like a little baby plant, seedlings wither and seedlings never produce fruit. God's word says in Hebrews 5.11, immature understanding of God comes from laziness. You need to proactively seek out a mentor who is able to further you along, to humble yourself under them that they do no more than you. You know the, the guy in Acts who was trying to understand Isaiah, right? And he couldn't understand it because someone had to come along and teach him. To put yourself under someone who has greater knowledge, greater experience, to learn from them so that they can cultivate the soil of your heart so that there might be greater understanding. And thirdly, if you have God's word and you are mature in understanding, yet you see no fruit, it could be as simple as you just don't trust God. The reason that we don't do the will of God when we know the will of God is because we think our way is better than his way. That's all it is. We trust that the way we want to live is better than what he's going to offer. I'll receive more blessing if I live for myself than to follow the will of God. And Jesus says, don't worry, don't be anxious about your life. Why? Because God sees great worth in you and you can trust that his way of life gives more blessing than following what you want to do. What Jesus says is lacking is not that God isn't good, it's your faith to trust that God is good. Trust God by actually living out something that you have not surrendered to the Lord. 
You see, we kind of pick and choose the parts that we want to trust and obey because they're the easier ones that came easy to us. But it's hard when it's those things that we really want to hold on to because this is what makes my life stable. If you want to look at it in a friendship term, how do you know the reliability of someone? Well, you have to bank in them a bit, bank in a bit in their word to see if it's going to hold up, to see if it's trustworthy. Do that with the Lord's word. I can guarantee it will produce more of a blessing. This is how we get rid of the weeds in our life. Only with soil being plowed, tilled, continually cultivated to remove the weeds can we hope to produce the fruit of the good soil. And the church, we, the people, only grow in good soil. Now, that's the soil. We've got our good dirt, now we need our seed. We already know that the seed is the word of God according to the parable in Matthew 13, 19. Yet we need to deal with the exclusiveness of the claim. This farmer is not throwing out various types of seeds. He's throwing out a seed. Multiple seeds, just not varying. What they're landing in is different types of soil. Now, if that seed grows in good soil, it will always produce the same plant and the same fruit. To take this out of metaphor, you cannot grow from the same word of God Christians that produce a different kind of fruit from Christ-likeness. A Christ-likeness has three distinct qualities and we're going to look at the fruit to be able to distinguish what's planted. There is the fruit, Scripture says, there is the fruit of good works that comes from repentance. Matthew 3.8 says that a truly repentant person is one who receives the forgiveness of God and they will do good works, the things of God, in conformity to their repentance. Repentance is not just one act, but it's a lived out thing. Furthermore, Colossians says that it, you are to bear fruit in every good work. So there is the things that we physically do. That's a fruit that scripture says that we are to do, like giving out generously our money. But then there's also the fruit of the Spirit. These are not things that we do. These are attitudes or virtues that Christians have because the Spirit of God lives within them. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the Spirit's fruit, and they are exercised when you and I keep in step with the Spirit and not according to our flesh. And these are things that not some Christians have and not others, but all of us are to be doing together. You can't sit there and go, well, I give away my money to the poor, but I don't love anyone. No, we produce the fruit all together. These aren't for some and not for others, but for all. And lastly, there is the fruit of reproducing reproducing disciples who inherit eternal life. Jesus says of his ministry, truly I tell you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus' ministry of giving up his life for his disciples bore in them eternal life. And the apostles and the disciples in turn, well, they gave up their life 
to make more disciples, to bear the fruit of eternal life in them, and so on and so forth until it comes down the generations, until it comes to you, and someone gave up their life and their time to produce a new discipleship that would bear the fruit of eternal life. And so it is with you now that you have the duty to re-disciple someone else to bear the fruit of eternal life in them. The same seed, word of God, will produce the same fruit Granted, it will all be at different amounts, some of us 60, some of us 80, some of us 100, but the same fruit of good deeds, godly virtues, and disciples. So what is the church? It is the place of manifestation of all God's goodness that he is doing in the world. It's bearing things like the fruit of forgiveness in people's marriages. It's bearing the fruit of a father and a mother who loves their children with all godliness and goodness. It's bearing the fruit of patience in a world that's too busy. Bearing the fruit of eternal life for people who don't know God. The fruit of reconciliation between two old friends. The fruit of praying for those that hurt us. The fruit of kindness in a world gone cold. Of joy in a sorrowful heart of obedient children to their parents. It's bearing Christ-likeness in all things. The church is the place where God's goodness is made manifest. Now some might say, well, the church is actually a place full of much evil, (laughs) a lot of bad fruit. To which I reply and I say, yes. There is a lot of evil and a lot of atrocities in churches. And Jesus taught on this because he knew it would happen. There's three things that he says on the bad fruit. The first is that not all who call themselves Christians are Christians, and therefore they don't belong to the church. Jesus says, be on your guard against false prophets, that's corrupt pastors, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? If a minister, a pastor, a priest, whatever it is, doesn't do what Jesus did, he calls them wolves. People who identify as his, but aren't his. And even worse than that, they try and teach others what it means to follow him, yet they themselves don't do it. Jesus says they don't belong to the church. But what is more, he continues and says, in the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. That's Christians in general. Self-proclaimed Christians are not Jesus's people if they aren't Christ-like. If they are not of the word of the seed, then they will produce, I mean, if they are, sorry, they will produce in his likeness. My second comment, which might come as a shock, is that some people in the church, Jesus says, do the work of Satan and not of God. He says, the kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. In this parable, Jesus is identifying that the wheat is God's people and the weeds are the people who are doing Satan's work sprinkled into the field. And their great work is the undoing of everything that God is doing through the church. There's great evil in the church because there is 
a great master evil at work opposing it. And the last comment I'll make on the bad fruit is Christians, we bear bad fruit when we stop participating in the word of God. Jesus says either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. If we produce bad fruit, it might be because where you're trying to draw from is a bad place. And it can't remain in the church. It's got to be repented of and removed. Now, if we're serious about producing the fruit of God, which is what it means to be the field, and I'll give three quick applications on this. My first one is, don't entertain the ministry of pastors, ministers, or priests who preach the word of God lightly, falsely, or in halves. And even more so, don't entertain their ministry if their teaching is fabulously accurate, yet their life is an utter disgrace. Who you listen to is who you become like. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 6, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Because you will become like them, led astray. If the preacher always talks about love, grace, kindness, and mercy, yet never wants to bring up things like judgment, sin, and conviction, or vice versa, they love fire and brimstone, but they never want to talk about the mercy, patience, goodness, and kindness of God. It might be they just like a half-truth. They like to kind of push down on people with the word of God angrily or maybe they don't want to offend anyone so they just always talk about the love of God but not the fact that that was shown through Jesus crucified for sins half-truths maybe they just want to preach lightly on the penalty of sin and they kind of just wash it all over never bring you to repentance but just kind of say well God knew we weren't going to be perfect and it's all right and just do some good things and, and you'll be okay and if they deny things like Jesus as God, right, the staple of what makes a Christian a Christian, well, that everyone kind of in the end is saved or hell's not really a real place, things of this description, or, or God calls blessed the things that he has called cursed. Just blunt lies. Don't entertain the ministry. Secondly, much like the first point, don't try to gain wisdom about God from brothers and sisters whose lives aren't living according to it. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there's some who are ignorant of what God says. To be led by Christians whose ways are knowingly sinful but boast a knowledge of God will in the end corrupt your own walk. I don't care how grand they think the wisdom is, the wisdom of God is to be able to discern the right and wrong in God's eyes, this is what wisdom is, and then do it. That's the wisdom of God. It's not just being able to discern but live it out. Number three, become mature enough for yourself to make distinctions between good and evil in the sight of God. Scripture says, don't be conformed to the age of this world, but transformed in the renewing of your mind so you can discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. If you can't distinguish between good and evil in the sight of God, how can you do the perfect and pleasing will of God? 
lastly, set your affections to the daily reading of God's word for the purpose of understanding and applying. Psalms 1, 2, and 3 says, His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing stream that bear fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prosper. The person bears good fruit because they've planted themselves in the word of God, in his instructions. When we abide there, we will produce, if we obey, the fruit of God. So notice all these applications are how you are informed about God through teachers, through one another, through social morals and God's word. All these things are seeded into our heart. They're just perpetuated. So be careful of what you allow to go into your heart to take root in there. Scripture says, above all else, guard your heart because everything else you do flows from it. One side point I want to make here, if you're a zealous person for all things godly and good, which I hope you are. Be zealous for it, especially in your own life. If we say that we hate the evils in the church, like notoriously pastors who are exposed for uh, sexual misconduct, and we jump on that zealous hobby horse of hating that misconduct with all our hearts like everyone else, yet we care nothing for the righteous fruit in our own lives, then we're not zealous about the things of God. We're actually just hypocritical. And I bring this up because hypocrisy, making these judgments on other people, but not actually looking at our own life, can be just as damaging as the evil itself. If you're a Christian, for instance, who might vehemently protest against kind of same-sex Christians, yet you yourself addicted to pornography or sleeping around or fornicating with your partner, then you don't hate sexual immorality like God hates sexual immorality. You hate certain kinds of sexual immorality that you don't enjoy yourself. Well, furthermore, if, if you're someone that kind of, you know, uses God's name to usurp government authority, so you can kind of plead the case, they don't live to the will of God, so I can reject it. Yet you're a tyrant over your kids, or you're a tyrant over your wife, or you're a tyrant over your workers, worse than what the government is. You don't hate the abuse of power, you hate an abuse of power over you. It's not zeal, it's hypocrisy. We hate all things that God hates and we love and cling to all things that God loves, even the things that we see in our own self. I have no problem with Christians discerning the bad fruit in the church, providing that we are just a harsh a critique on ourselves. The log out of our own eye before we go looking at sand in other people. The church is a place where God's goodness is made manifest in the world. And that will be produced when his people abide in the word. Take care of what you allow in. And lastly, now that we've looked at dirt and soil, what's it all for? A farmer is in the business of farming because the end goal, he wants to enjoy the fruits of his labor. And that comes at harvest time. Jesus' second parable that was read says that the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. 
So do you want us to go pull them out? The servant asked. No, he said. When you pull the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. They both grow together until harvest. At a harvest, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, tie them in bundles and burn them, but collect the wheat into my barn. There is something in God's field, as we just discussed, weeds that God does not enjoy. And it's not only bad fruit, but it's damaging the crops. Yet when the servant suggests that the weeds should be pulled out, the Lord refuses because he doesn't want it to be short-circuited before it's time. As a child, I often uh, had to go cotton chipping. You, you walk up and down furrows and you just got a hoe in your hand and, oh, that's not cotton. Oh, that's not cotton. And you just chip the whole way down the furrow. That's what you had to do. And one of the problems you faced when it was a really small field, and a small crop at the time, you didn't know if it was going to be a cotton plant or a weed plant that you're chipping out. So what you do is you just, those ones you kind of leave alone because you don't want to chip out what was planted. And the weed Jesus is specifically talking about, the tear, it's a weed that looks much like wheat. And so you have to let them grow together because you can't really tell at that time what it is. And the second one is sometimes if the weed is too close to the wheat, when you pull it out, as many of you know, if you've ever had weeds in your grass, you pull out both because it's all kind of collected in with it. And so there's this immature pulling away or cutting away from the kingdom of God. So to take both these things out of metaphor real quick, Christians can fall away, number one, <clears throat> because they're prejudged before their time. Jesus says, judge not so that you won't be judged. Despite how many people like to interpret this, it does not mean that we can't discern whether things are right or wrong in people's lives. Jesus is, is telling people to, to actually do that. It's saying that we can't condemn each other. We cannot take the judgment seat of God and condemn our brothers and sisters because of their sins. And if we do, Jesus actually says, well, the measure that you used, I'll use back on you. He'll judge you according to what you gave to other people. And so if all of us went around swinging the hoe against one another, we'd all end up plucking each other up. Scripture says in Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge another's household servant before, he, uh, servant before his own Lord he stands or he falls? The two will grow together. The distinction will be made at the end. I remember at my previous church when I was a very zealous Christian, there were some people that I really didn't want in the church. And I talked to my head pastor about it. He said to me, Stephen, we don't do that. We preach the word of God faithfully and it'll make the distinction. People will leave or they'll stay based on the premise of what is preached by the word of God. But we don't make that judgment call. The second way wheat can be removed, like I said, is if it's pulled out with the weed. Christians can be removed prematurely due to our lack of patience and long-suffering with them. Long-suffering is such a nice word, I think. It kind of means to bear with someone even though they bring turmoil and pain into your life. You bear with them in their sins. When I came to faith... Some of you might not know, but that was actually through Pastor Jonathan. And what I found out in more recent years since I've been working with him is that 
he got to a point where he's like, I'm just over Stephen. <laughs> and it's because I, I just, I flip-flop for a few years, you know, and it's frustrating, right? When, you, when you're, uh, if you're tending a plant and you're putting a lot of time into that plant and you want it to yield and it's not doing anything, that's, that's frustration in work. And I believe that was the frustration he had with me. <laughs> but he was telling me that he recalled this, this time when he was like, Lord, I'm just kind of over it. And the Lord said promptly back to him, who are you to decide? Who are you to decide? If Jonathan wasn't bearing the righteous fruit of long suffering, <laughs> I could have been prematurely pulled before my time, right? Could have just been another person that was hurt by a pastor, that was hurt by a church that says no one cares about me. Pulled out before my time with the weeds that were choking me. Scripture speaks on it like this. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. People wonder, why hasn't God come back yet? Like, you know, the world's so screwed up. Peter says, because God's patient. Because God's long-suffering with people. Because he wants them in the kingdom. He gives them time. Not pulled out before their time. And so there is a harvest that is to come where there will be a distinction made between wheat and weeds. And that distinction of wheat and weeds, the church is the one that has the word of God and truly abides by it. Weeds is everything else that does not. Now, God doesn't desire this outcome for anyone. He says in Ezekiel 18, I don't take pleasure in the death of wicked people. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I take pleasure when they turn from their ways and they live. God will make that harvest in his time. It is not our role in God's field to work the last harvest trying to judge who is and who isn't in the kingdom of God. But there is a way that we do participate in the harvest of God. And I'll finish my sermon here. Matthew chapter 9, 36, 10 through to 1, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he's looking at these people, he has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out some workers into the field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus is looking out into the world. He's looking out into Bly Park. He's looking out into South Windsor. He's looking out into the Hawkesbury. And when he looks at those faces, he wells up with compassion for them. And he looks at the people who should have been doing his job and he says, they don't have anyone. No one's been taking care of them. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, can you guys pray to God that God would raise up people that would go out to these people? So we should be praying for this. But secondly, what he does is then he gets his disciples and he raises them up and he says, you be these people. Go out. The problem isn't 
that the word of God can't harvest people. The problem isn't that there's not fruit in the world. There's no one there to go pluck it. I used to work in orange trees as well. And you go along as you're going through the orange trees and all you do is you just lightly kind of, you don't really do much, you kind of just grab it and it just falls off. Right? And that's how you know it's ripe, stays on, you don't worry about it. But the idea is, is that we are called to do this, to go to people, to give them the word of God and to see what happens. See, past that point, it's not on us. That's the Lord working through us and they will either have a hard heart that won't receive or they'll be ready. And that's our job. The church's job is to be farmers in the field calling people to God through Christ who offers the forgiveness of sins. And like I said at the beginning, I think sometimes the church forgets that it's farmers, right? Your job is you're going to get dirty by default. If there's anything I know about farming, especially watching my brother, it's really frustrating work. Because you do all the work, yet you have no idea whether you're going to have a crop at the end. Could flood, you had ducks one year, you had emus another year. And it didn't matter how much overtime he did, he just couldn't seem to yield a successful thing. But that's not the point. The point is you do your role and you pray to the Lord and the Father will call them. But if no one goes out, then the fruit just falls on the ground. This is our work. This is our role. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, that you already have, equipped us to do what we need to do. Father, so much of the time it's just we don't trust that you'll take care of it. And I pray for this congregation and for myself that we would not just read your word and then go home and do nothing. But Father, that we would live according to it. That we would have eyes like your son Jesus who looks at a people that are ready to know you, Father. And that we would go to them and that you would take a deep joy, as we know you do, in the sinner who turns and comes back to you, but also a deep joy in the fruit of your people, that you would bear in us all godly joy, patience, peace, and love, all good works in accordance to your scripture, and that we would lead other people to you because you have empowered us to do so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.